You're listening to the Brandon Women's Bible Study Podcast, led by Leslie Ann Jones. Hey y'all, this is Leslie Ann. I'm so glad that you're joining me this week. This podcast is Lesson 3 of Known, a non-week study on the Gospel of John. In this week's session, we discuss the inauguration of Jesus as the Messiah sent to save the whole world. This teaching corresponds with the homework that begins on page 11 of the Learner Workbook, available for download at leslieannjones.com known. In this week's lesson, as I was trying to think of a way to introduce it, I just kept thinking about how this is the inauguration of Jesus' reign as the Messiah. We just had a very big inauguration in our country and it more than any other one that I have experienced some of you have experienced many more than me um, but this one was a big change it seemed like from the past administration to this one it's out with the old and in with the new he overturned a lot of Obama's declarations he was writing new laws making new Statements, all sorts of things, and it was very apparent that this era is going to be different from that era. Now, Jesus is far superior (laughs) to any president that we have ever had, but when he started his ministry, it was a change. It was a change from the way things used to be to the way that they were going to be from here on out. Now, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But his coming in the flesh marked the beginning of a new chapter in that same story that started way back at creation that we talked about last week. And so he starts his ministry, his inauguration, I guess, his inaugural tour, at the most ordinary of human events, at a wedding. And here he is, God in the flesh. He comes to earth, and after he is announced as, you know, the word of God made flesh, the lamb of God sent to um, take away the sins of the world, rabbi, messiah. Like, he's giving all of these radiant titles in chapter 1, and then it's like it zooms in, and it's like, okay, this is what his ordinary life looked like. He went to a wedding, just like many of us go to weddings. And so he's at the wedding, And I don't know how much you know about weddings in those days, but they were kind of a big deal. You know, weddings here, sometimes if a couple is really fancy, they'll have like a wedding weekend, right? Or a destination wedding where they fly everybody in and you can have, we did not do that, by the way, but some people do. Um, But it's an event that lasts a span of two or three days usually, but not longer than that, maybe a weekend. Um, In those days, the Jewish culture, it was not uncommon for the wedding celebration to last for up to a week. So we don't know why the wine ran out. It doesn't say, you know, maybe it was lack of planning. Maybe um, people just partook too much. (laughs) That's a possibility as well. We don't know why, but what we do know is that the wine ran out. And in your homework, I mentioned that in those days, in that culture, wine was a symbol of blessing and gladness and joy. It was viewed as a gift from God. And so not only would the lack of wine be an embarrassment, but the family could also be held legally responsible for not providing a good time for their guests. 
You can sue people for any reason. Well, they could have been sued for not upholding the laws of hospitality in their land. It was a big deal. Hospitality in the Middle East is a big deal. It still is today. And so if you did not have enough to provide for your guests, then you could also not expect to keep the gift that they had brought you. The wine running out is embarrassing, but it was also serious in this kind of, oh my goodness, they're out of wine. This is going to look really bad for the family. We can be in trouble for that kind of thing. And so Mary, which was obviously close to the family because she was kind of in on the behind the scenes stuff. And I don't know if it was a secret that the wine ran out or it was apparent that they're running out of wine. But she comes to Jesus and she expects him to fix the problem. What do you think about his response to her in verse 4? Woman, what does this have to do <laughs> I know. What does this have to do with me? That is not, not how you would expect him to speak to his mother, right? Well, all the commentators say that um, it's not as harsh as it sounds to our ears, that really the English translation doesn't do it justice. It's more like ma'am. Or, you know, late, you know, a term of respect in a sort of way. But still, his response is surprising and kind of makes me scratch my head a little bit because he says, My hour has not yet come. And then a few verses later, he does what she asks him to. And so, Jesus always tells the truth, he never lies. So it can't mean that he wasn't going to do it, right? Because he turned around and did it. So when he says, my hour has not yet come, it must mean something other than I'm not going to help. And throughout the Gospel of John, we'll see this in the coming weeks ahead. The, hour, the idea of timing is a big deal. He'll say it more than once. You'll see it come up again. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And then the closer he gets to the crucifixion, he says, my hour is at hand. And so... When he's speaking of his hour, he's speaking of the time when um, he will be crucified and the, his plan as the Messiah will come into fullness as a reality. So the fullness of time had not arrived, but it was still the beginning of time for him to act because by the end of the story, it says that he manifested his glory by turning the water into wine. Now, I asked you to do a little bit of math in your homework with the water pot. So, how much water did they end up with when they filled up those six water pots for purification? It was a range of 120 to 180 gallons of water. Can you imagine drawing that much water by hand into a pot? So they would have had these, um, the jars were specifically for purification purposes. It says there was a Jewish rite of purification. And I don't know if you remember, in one of the other Gospels, in Mark chapter 7, some of the Pharisees make a kind of derogatory comment about the disciples of Jesus because they were eating without washing their hands. They hadn't purified, you know, they hadn't gone through the purification rites before they ate. So they were unclean. Well, at the very least, the people at the wedding would have used those purification pots to wash their hands before eating. Someone would have dipped the water out. They would have poured it over their hands, and they would have been 
clean, um, literally, and then also spiritually, they would have been considered clean to partake in any kind of religious activities. And so the fact that it's very specifically mentioned here that they were for Jewish rites of purification, and they're filled with water, and then Jesus transforms that water into something else. So this is the old way. This is what you used to do to make sure that you were okay to approach God. You went through these rituals of cleaning yourself, making sure that you were clean and fit to enter the temple. But now I'm doing something different. And he fills it with wine. He turns it into wine, and it's so much wine. What do you do with 180 gallons of wine? I mean, can you imagine? And also imagine, which I just get stuck on little details like this too, but how much that would have been worth. I mean, I don't know how, how much a good bottle of wine costs these days, much less those days. But can you imagine, the master of the feast said, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now, so obviously it was good stuff. So it must have been worth quite a bit. What a wedding gift to give. When Jesus gives, the symbolism of this is rich, because when he gives, he doesn't give it stingily. He doesn't say, you have 15 people here, here's 15 servings for you, just enough to cover you. That's all you need. He gives in abundance so that it overflows. It says they filled those water pots up to the brim. They filled them till they were right at the very top till it couldn't hold anymore. And he transformed it all. He changed it into something new. And remember, what does that wine stand for? Joy and gladness and blessings. And so when Jesus gives blessings, he does it abundantly. He does not hold back from us. He gives it without measure and so that it meets all of our needs. Even at this point in the feast when they run out, Jesus provides it, and he provides it in abundance. And he's showing that he is taking those old ways, and he's doing something new, that the law and all of its requirements are being replaced with the abundance of God's grace. Because that, that gift of that wine is a gift of grace that he has given to that family that they couldn't provide for themselves, apparently. And that's what grace is. It is when God does something for us that we can't do for ourselves. When I think about those servants, though, who are filling up those water pots, how they must have felt about that task in the middle of a wedding where, you know, guests were probably demanding more food or their services were needed elsewhere. And Mary turned to them and says, do what he says. And she probably gave them the best instructions they had ever received. Um, Because isn't that the word that we all need to hear? Do what he says. Follow his instructions. Whatever it is that he tells you to do, do that. And so they filled the water jars up. What do you think they were thinking as they were pouring that water into the house? Why am I doing this? What does this have to do with wine? They're out of wine. We're not out of water. Why are we doing this? Like, water is not the problem. we got plenty of water. And they just kept pouring and pouring and pouring. And so it just made me think of the fact that sometimes the work that God has called us to do may seem meaningless and small. But we never know what it is that he is going to do with it. 
if those servants had not filled those pots. I'm sure Jesus could have made it work. But because they were obedient, it allowed his glory to be shown, to, to shine through. One of the commentaries that I read by J.C. Ryle said that duties are ours, events are God's. It is ours to fill the water pots. It is Christ's to make the water wine. Everything we do is about pointing to Jesus. No matter how small, no matter how menial the task, it has the potential to bring glory to Jesus if we are obedient and if we allow him to work through us, if we obey even those small things. And John says at the end of this section in verse 11, he says, this is the first of his signs that he did in Cana at Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Y'all, this is a, this is a big deal because um, when I think about Jesus or it, like if I was going to make an entrance, this is why God is so much wiser than me, but if I was going to make an entrance, I would try to do it in a big flashy kind of way. But a wedding in a small town among a small group of people, and probably not everyone knew what had happened. You know, the servants who poured the water knew, Mary knew, the people close, you know, who witnessed it, the disciples knew. It doesn't say that hordes of people came to believe in him because of the sign. It says that the disciples believed in him. And so it was a small group, but it made a statement regardless. And because the disciples witnessed it, then John put it here. And now we have it to carry on. Now, it says that this is the first of his signs. There are several of these signs. That's the word that John uses to talk about Jesus' miracles. Another one that we had in our homework this week was the healing of the official son. So what do signs do? Like, what is the function of a sign? A regular sign. A road sign. What does a road sign do? Gives you direction. Tells you what's coming up. What about... There aren't any in here. An exit sign. Got to get out. out. (laughs) Those flash, we know what those look like. You remember those old signs that they used to have with like the arrows, the big, they had like the, you know, you could put the letters on the little sign and thing and then they had the big flashy yellow arrows. I'm doing a terrible job of the marquee signs. Yes. Used to see those on the side of the road everywhere. I don't see those anymore, but they should come back. They were cute. What do those signs tell you? Pull over here, something good to see, right? So signs point to something. They show you a reality other than itself that you would not otherwise know. And in the case of Jesus' miracles as signs, they are pointing to the reality that Jesus is not just an ordinary person. It's saying, hey, he's different from the rest of us. This sign is showing us that he is God himself. It shows us that He has the power to transform this one in particular. Literally, he can transform the molecules of water and turn them into wine. He can change things. He has power over creation. And it also shows us um, that the Messiah, the coming of the Messiah doesn't mean that we can carry on with business as usual. Things are going to change Something different is ahead. And you can see that immediately in the next passage when he goes to cleanse the temple. It says the Passover, starting in verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, 
He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. Does this disturb anybody else? What do you usually think of when you think of Jesus? He is kind. Jesus is loving. He is good. He is full of grace. Like you picture him sitting there calmly with the little children around his knees, right? That was the illustration in my Bible growing up. If we just take the gentle and the meek and the mild parts of Jesus and we discard the righteous anger and the sense of justice, um, then we don't get a full picture of who God is. That is how we end up in the boat that we're in right now in our culture where people are saying, Jesus would never do that. He is loving and he is nice. Jesus is nice. He's kind. He wants us to be nice to people. And so we end up in this situation where you can't call anything wrong because that would be mean and Jesus was nice, so we can't do that. Well, he was loving and he was kind, but he also had a righteous anger that boiled over at injustice and at sinfulness and at a lack of reverence for God. And that's what is going on here. He sees these uh, money changers and everything that's going on. And it's not that the activity itself was that bad. It was Passover. So Jews from all over the nation would come and they would be expected to make a sacrifice. And if you're traveling across the countryside to get there, it will be easier to buy the sacrifice when you get to town than it would be to haul the sheep with you all the way from your home. I mean, it makes practical sense. The problem wasn't necessarily with what they were doing. It was with how they were doing it and where they were doing it. They were doing it in ways that took advantage of all of those people who had traveled in. They had to change their money at the temple because only a certain kind of money was accepted at the temple because there were all these different kind of currencies floating around at the time, and they would only accept a certain kind of coin. And when they changed their money they would exact a big tax on it. And then the animals themselves were also expensive, so they were taking advantage of the people who had come to worship. But not only that, where they were doing it was a problem because the way that the temple was arranged, um, it was the temple complex was a rectangle, and this outer courtyard was the court of the Gentiles. And that's where... People who were not Jews were supposed to come and to learn about God. As a Gentile, you could convert to Judaism. You could become a Jew. So these people who were interested in God would come here to worship him. They weren't allowed to go into the inner parts of the temple. That was just strictly for Jews. But they could still come. But where all of the the market stuff was going on was here, where the people where the Gentiles were supposed to come and where they were supposed to worship. And so they were saying, this is only a Jewish thing. They were shutting out anyone else who might want to come in and see God. But not only that, can you imagine if you were inside the temple trying to worship and trying to pray, what it would have sounded like to have animals out back? I mean, you could hear everything going on. Some of the commentaries um called it the the bazaar of annas annas was 
one of the former high priests will meet him later on. But Jesus comes in and it infuriates him. Their greed and their lack of reverence is what infuriated them him about it and so he throws them out he turns the tables over he makes this big scene and the jews are saying hey what right do you have to do this what gives you the right to do these things and he says they say in verse 18 what sign do you show us for doing these things like okay if you're going to do this you must have a good reason so do a sign show us that you have the authority to do this And the answer that he gives them is kind of cryptic because he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. They said, it has taken 46 years to build the temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that he had spoken. The sign that he offers them is the greatest sign of all. Ironically enough, they're the ones who bring it about when they condemn him and they crucify him and then he is resurrected. The sign that they ask for, they get eventually, but even they don't realize what it is when it comes. Jesus in the temple is a sign of the new order. He calls his own body here. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. So Jesus is pictured in this passage as the temple. And so he's saying, if you want to worship God, come to me. I am where you will find God. If you want to worship God in spirit and truth, come to me, and I will show you the way. He is the way for that. I think it's easy for us on this side with all that we know. We know the end of the story. We know how things go to look at them and wonder what they were thinking. How could they have rejected Jesus? But at the same time, everything he was doing was so radical. It was so different from the religion that they had grown up with. In a way, I feel really sorry for them. Because a lot of them thought that they were doing the right thing. They thought that they knew the way to God. They thought that they had it all figured out. That what they were doing was what God required of them. But they were so far off base. And Jesus here shows that it's not the sacrifices that are so important to him. It's justice and it's mercy, and it's true and right worship. Those are the things that he's looking for, for those who will come to him. In our next section, it kind of zooms in even further on one Jew and their reaction to Jesus. The way that I see it, chapter 2 is the introduction to Jesus' ministry, this indication that What he's doing is going to be something new. It's going to be something different. His reign as the Messiah is going to be one that's filled with joy, with gladness, with grace, with truth. Um, It's a reign where true worship is important, where coming to the Lord is important. And then the next few chapters 
we see who it is, the type of people who, I guess, make up the citizens in this new kingdom. And he kind of zooms in on different types of people. So, for example, in Nicodemus, Nicodemus is a Jew. He is as Jewish as you can get. He's a teacher of the Jews. He is respected. He's a member of the Sanhedrin, which means he's part of their ruling body. And so he represents the Jewish nation. And then in chapter 4, at the beginning of it, we get the Samaritan woman. She is a half-Jew. So she represents those who are part of the old order, part of the new, you know, they have one foot in the Gentile world, one foot in the Jewish world. And Jesus comes to her. She is immoral. She's had this crazy life filled with all these men. She is looked down on by the society that she lives in. She is not a respected member of her community. Total opposite of Nicodemus right there. And Jesus comes to her and talks to her. And then with the official that we see at the end of chapter 4, he was most likely a Gentile. He was not a Jew at all. He would have been an official appointed by the Romans in Herod Antipas's court, if you remember. He was the ruler of Galilee, the, the region that Jesus lived in. So the official is a Gentile. He represents the rest of us. He's the rest of the world. In these three examples, you see Jesus coming and sharing the word of truth, sharing life, and teaching people how to receive this eternal life. And you see John 3.16 in all of it. Jesus came to save who? The world. And these three people are representatives of the world and we see their different reactions to him in it now we read at the end of chapter 2 verse 23 through 25 it says now when he was in jerusalem at the passover feast many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing but jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man And now he's going to show us through Nicodemus, through the Samaritan woman, through the official, how he knows everything that there is to know about them. We get this little introduction and then we get the demonstration of it. Jesus knows his knowledge is supernatural. It comes from God and himself. And so he knows everything that they're thinking. He knows what they need before before they even voice that need. He knows And he then goes on to say, it says, he knew what was in man. Verse 3, chapter 1, now there was a man. Jesus knows what's a man. Now there's a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Well, first of all, it's significant that Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the night. Do you remember way back, of, way back at the beginning of this month, we talked about some of the things that John talks about. One of them is light and darkness. And so when he's saying, now Nicodemus could have come 
to Jesus in the night for many reasons. He could have been busy during the day. I don't know. But theologically speaking, especially given what Jesus says about light and darkness at the end of this chapter, um, I think he's trying to say that Nicodemus comes from the dark and goes to the light to find out the truth. He leaves the dark. He goes to the light. He goes to Jesus. He recognizes a lot of things about Jesus that are true. And at first glance, what he says about Jesus almost sounds like a confession. He says, we know you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you can do unless God is with him. What he's saying is, we see God's hand on you. We know that God is at work in you. But he doesn't confess him as the Messiah. He doesn't say, we know that you are the one come to save us from our sins. It's almost like he approaches him teacher to teacher. Like, let's, let's talk about some things here. We know that God is with you. Let's talk. I want to talk with you about some of this stuff that you're teaching. And so he comes to him as a fellow teacher. Who knows how Nicodemus thought the conversation was going to go. I don't know what he thought he was going to talk to Jesus about because he didn't really get a chance. Jesus takes it and says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And we see here a pattern emerging that Jesus has in a lot of his conversations. And John, he says something. In this case, it's, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. And then the person he's talking to is confused. What do you mean? How can I be born? Like, I'm too big. Cannot go back in and come back out. It's not going to work that way. And then Jesus goes on and explains the truth. The same thing happens when he's talking to the woman at the well. He says, I'll give you some water that you'll never thirst again. She was like, what? Are you greater than Jacob? How can you give me water? You know, and then he goes on and explains the truth. And so this pattern kind of emerges where he says something and he is misunderstood and then he has to go and explain. And what he's telling Nicodemus that's so hard for Nicodemus to grasp is that the kingdom of God belongs to those who have been given new life by the Spirit of God. It's a supernatural transformation. One of the things in your homework was the concept of born again and how for us, it's a common concept. We've heard it so many times, but it wasn't necessarily a common concept to Nicodemus. So a little bit of confusion is normal, I think. But then he, when Jesus goes on to talk to him in those further verses, in verses 5 through 8, when he says, you must be born of water in the spirit, Nicodemus still doesn't understand how can these things be. And Jesus answers them, how can you be a teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? If Nicodemus was supposed to understand them, then I think we should draw the conclusion 
that whatever Jesus is talking about here is also mentioned in the Old Testament. And there's a couple of passages um, in Isaiah that talk about how in the coming days, it's Isaiah chapter 44, um, verses 3 through 4. I can look it up. But he's talking about how God will make rain to fall on the dry and parched ground, how he will make rivers flow in the desert, and he will pour his spirit out on the land, and the people will return to God. Now, that is a complete paraphrase and a mixture of two different passages, I'm sure. But the general force of it is that the water and the spirit are tied together there, where God will renew and transform what is weary, what is broken, what is parched and dry, and he will make new life spring up there. So there's Isaiah 44, verses 3 through 4, and then Isaiah 43, verses 18 through 20. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I'll make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. And he says in 44 verse 3, I'll pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I'll pour my spirit out on your offspring. And so at the very least, Nicodemus should have tied these things together. That the water and the spirit belong together. They are necessary for this renewal that has been promised in the Old Testament and in other places too. God promises it in Ezekiel chapter 36. He says in verse 25 through 29. Chapter 36 verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And so what Jesus is saying is this new life, this kingdom of God life is not something that you can do by yourself. He says it is not a birth by flesh. So you're not going to get there by your genealogy. You're not going to get there just because you're Jewish, Nicodemus. That's not going to get you there. You're not going to get there because you followed some rules. Not because you're a Pharisee, Nicodemus. Not because you're a good one who knows all the rules and makes sure that you're doing the right things. That's not going to get you there. What gets you there? The transforming work of the Spirit in your life to change your cold, dead heart into a living, beating one that is full of life from the Spirit. And how does that happen? That happens by turning to Jesus, by looking at, by gazing at um, the Son, just like Nicodemus. Our ancestors looked to the bronze serpent in the wilderness to save them. Did any of you look up that story in Numbers? Such a strange and random thing to pick up, right? Like, hey, Nicodemus, remember that time that our ancestors were in the wilderness and God judged them because they were being cranky and grumpy and fussing at him? And so he sent snakes to bite them. Remember that? Yeah. How did God save them then? So strange, this Old Testament world that they lived in. 
Well, he had Moses make a snake of bronze. How long do you think that took while the people are writhing in pain? Go hammer out a snake of bronze. And he held it up. And whenever the people looked at the snake, what happened? They lived. How many people do you think refused to look at the snake? Y'all, it's kind of a crazy story, but it's such a good illustration of what is necessary for us. Because haven't we all experienced the sting of the serpent. We all have been affected by that curse of sin. We have all been bitten. And we all have to look to Jesus for salvation. We all have to turn to him. And he says the Son of Man must be lifted up. So when is Jesus lifted up? He's lifted up on the cross. And so it's there at that cross, in that moment, that is where we find our salvation because of that work that he did when he was on the cross. And also, when was he lifted up after that? It is his resurrection that gives us the promise of life. And so he's speaking here of things that Nicodemus can't quite understand yet. And poor Nicodemus. I mean, can you imagine? He goes to talk to this guy and he tells him he doesn't know anything, basically. And then he tells him things that he should know, but he doesn't know. And then he tells him things that are going to happen, but haven't happened. And he's very cryptic about what he's saying. But at least later, I find this story pretty unsatisfying in the sense that it doesn't tell us. Any, Nicodemus doesn't say anything else. He asks a few questions, and that's it. We don't get a response from him. We don't get anything else. But we do know that later on, he is one of the ones who helped bury Jesus. We know that he eventually was with Jesus at that point. So we don't know what happens in the intervening times, but at the end, when it mattered, when so many of his disciples had kind of fled from Jesus, they were hiding, or Peter had rejected Jesus, Nicodemus was there, and he stood up for him in that moment, at least. You know, Jesus tells him, you must look to the Son. You must look to me. And then he goes on and says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him, I can't say it, not in King James, I'm sorry, but whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed. How many times has he said believed here? It's like every other word. He's saying believe, believe, believe. You must believe in the Son. So here's my question for you. What is it that we are supposed to believe about Jesus? What does it mean to believe in Jesus? For something that is so essential to our faith and to our salvation to believe that he is the son of God, that's right, that he is the Messiah sent to save us from our sins. Now, do you think, is this something that just happens like once in an instant, or do you think that faith is a lifetime of choosing to look at Jesus? I think I read an article a few months back about salvation and faith and confession and repentance and the relationship between the two because the question was 
if there is someone who says that at some point in their life they accepted Jesus, they believed in Jesus, and yet their life is just full of sin, there is no evidence of any kind of change whatsoever in their life. Is that person truly saved? Like, was their belief real? Or is belief something more than just this prayer that we pray? Is it deeper than that? And are we doing people a disservice when we say, all you have to do is just pray this prayer? Is that really all you have to do? And so I think we have to be careful because it is true that all you have to do is believe. But this article that I read, it put it so well. It says you cannot turn to Jesus in faith without turning away from your old life of sin. And so it's a constant turning to Jesus and turning away from the world. And that is what faith is, is turning to him above all else. That is what it means to believe in Jesus, is looking at him, gazing at him. Like the serpent lifted up in the wilderness, it's choosing to look at Jesus above all else and to say, he will save me. I believe in him. I'm looking at him and focusing on him. How does that change things when we turn to him? Okay, we are going to fly through the last chapter. Let's just hop on over John the Baptist, and I want to point out one thing about this passage that he said. I'm like, ah, oh, there's so much left. We have like, it's almost 8 o'clock. How does this happen? Are y'all tired of listening to me? Surely you are. Okay, so one thing that John said, aside from the he must increase, but I must decrease, which, by the way, is one of the greatest lines to remember ever, But he says that Jesus is the bridegroom, and when the friend of the bridegroom stands and hears him, he rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. And it just called to memory that wedding feast that Jesus had just been at, where he really did what the bridegroom was supposed to do and provided all of the wine. He provided all of the joy and gladness. And also it made me think of in Revelation when John is writing again, And he talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he presents the church as a spotless and pure bride for this bridegroom who is waiting, who has come for her. And I guess in this case, John would be like the best man who does so much work for the groom to get the bride ready for his coming. Well, I guess not these days. But in those days, the um, friend of the bridegroom was actually the one who went and got the bride and brought her to the groom. And so if you remember, John's ministry was one to Israel. He was supposed to prepare the people of God for the coming of the Messiah. And he's saying, this is what I was born to do. Don't, Don't cause up any trouble here. There's no competition here. This is what I was born to do. And I'm going to do it because he must increase and I must decrease. Okay, on to the woman at the well. How's that for a transition? The thing about the woman at the well that always gets me, and I know you know this because you've heard it so many times, probably, is that she was such an outcast. She was on the fringe of her society. Who goes, walks over half a mile to draw water with a heavy pot, enough water for a whole day of use at high noon? Who does that? Is that when you want to go walking with a heavy pot of water? 
when would you go? In the morning, first thing, when all the other women went. And so she was obviously trying to avoid that situation. She didn't want to be there around them. And so she goes at noon, and lo and behold, there's a man sitting there. It's Jesus. <laughs> what are you doing there? Why are you talking to me? <laughs> like nobody else is supposed to be here at this time of day. But it says in verse 6 that Jesus was wearied as he was from his journey. Y'all, so many times we focus on Jesus' divinity, and he was. But y'all, he was also human. He was tired. He'd been walking. He was thirsty. So he's going to sit down and have a rest while someone else goes and gets some lunch. And so he sits down and he waits and he says, give me a drink. And she's like, excuse me? Why are you asking me to give you a drink? Because you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. And first of all, we don't talk to each other. And second of all, if you drink from my water pot, you might be unclean. Because that was what was going on. For him to drink from her hand would make him unclean. So she was really just totally taken aback and startled by him talking to her. <clears throat> but his words to her are so similar to the words that he tells Nicodemus. He tells her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And again, she's confused, just like Nicodemus. You don't have anything to get water with. How are you going to give me water? You don't have a way to get it. You have no pot with you. How are you going to get that out? Hmm? So she's kind of sarcastic in her response. And he says, everyone who drinks of this water in this well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. Now, what is this living water that Jesus is speaking of? Does anyone know? Mm-hmm. Everlasting life. And he says later on, we'll get to it next week, I think, in John chapter 7, he stands up in front of a crowd of people. Um, John 7, verse 37. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So Jesus is saying, I'm offering you eternal life. But it comes by the Spirit. It is the Spirit that gives this eternal life. And so she still doesn't really understand what he's talking about. Um, so she's like, you mean I, don't have, I, I won't have to come back here with my water pot ever again? If you give me this water, like, first of all, I'm not going to have to carry this heavy thing here. And second of all, I'm not going to have to worry about running into anybody that I might not want to see. Yes, sign me up. I want some of that. He says something to her that just sets her on her tail. He says, go get your husband and come here with him. And she's like, I, I don't have a husband. And he says, I know. Because he knows, and then he tells her everything she ever did. And it is his knowledge of her that convinces her that he is something different. And she draws the same kind of conclusion that Nicodemus does. She says, you must be a prophet. 
So she asks him a theological question. Again, let me turn the focus off myself. I don't want to talk about the husbands and the men and all that scandal. I don't need to know. Let's don't talk about that. Let's talk about um, where's the proper place to worship. <laughs> I mean, what a change of pace. You say we should worship in Jerusalem, but our ancestors worship here. And he's like, whoa, whoa. No, worship is something that happens in spirit and in truth. And then eventually throughout their conversation, she says, I know that Messiah is coming. That's verse 25. And he admits, I who speak to you am he. Y'all, what compassion he has for her. He didn't tell Nicodemus, I am the Messiah. He didn't tell anybody else that. But he told her. And he, he spoke to her in the way that she needed to hear and he didn't give up on her. I think so many times when we're having those difficult conversations with people, like we may try to bring up something of faith. We may try to bring up Jesus. But when they say, you know, they change the subject, we let them, you know. But he is not content to leave her as she is. He tells her the truth and he makes sure that she hears the truth before she leaves and the moment that she hears it the moment that she understands it her life is changed from then on out she goes she goes straight to those people who whisper about her behind her back and she tells them everything that they need to hear and they come running and because of that it says that many in her town were saved it says in verse 41, many believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said. You brought us here and we listened to you, but it's not because of what you said, but it's because we have heard for ourselves and we know indeed that this is the savior of the world. And so then he moves on. He leaves there. His work there is done. And he goes on back to Galilee where he meets the official whose son is so very sick. And the thing about the official that stands out, his story is so short compared to hers. Verses 46 through 54, we don't even get 10 verses here for him. But even though he had no reason to believe, he was the least likely candidate. He had not been raised as a Jew. He had not been raised in the ways of God. He wasn't even a half-Jew, so he... He didn't necessarily have that background. He was a Gentile, and yet he saw Jesus. He had heard about the signs that he had done, and he recognized that he was one who could help, and he came to him for help. And at first, Jesus kind of rebukes him a little bit, but then he has compassion, and he shows mercy. And that man, he believed without even seeing what had happened. It was Jesus' words that he believed. It wasn't the miracle, it was Jesus, Jesus speaking. It was the words that he spoke that transformed that man's life. <clears throat> and then it finishes up, it says, He himself believed in all of his household. And this was the second sign that Jesus did. All of those signs, they point to who Jesus is. And the people that he encountered represent the whole world. They represent you and they represent me. And and what we do when we encounter Jesus, when, when we are given that chance for 
drinking from that stream of living water or experiencing that second birth or choosing darkness over light or are we going to turn to Jesus or are we going to turn away from him like who what crazy person who had been bitten by a snake would not look at the serpent on the pole who would do that who would be that stubborn you know but so many of us so many of the people that we know so many now refuse to look to Jesus as the source of their help, the only source of their help. Think about it. If, if you have a problem, if you are experiencing something difficult, um, you know, we need to talk about that. I need to work on that on myself. Or we might read a book about how to be, you know, a better mom or how to do this or how to do that or how to overcome fear or how to get over your anxiety or how to get over your feelings of inadequacy or whatever it is. And we turn, it seems like so many times, to the world and to other people to fix our problems, to mend what is broken inside of us instead of turning to the only one who can heal, the only one who can give us life and quench that thirst within us and so this week my encouragement to you to me is to look to him first in those moments when you're really frustrated with someone else to turn to Jesus and then say God help me to love her or when you're really angry at your children I wouldn't know anything about this to say Lord take my anger turn it into love Or when you're feeling despair or unloved or less than, to turn to Jesus and say, Lord, fill me with your love and with your compassion. Show me who I am in you. To turn to him first before we turn to anyone else or anything else as the source of our life, as the source of our comfort, as the source of our hope. He is the one who sustains. He is the source of that living water. He is the source of that abundant joy. He is the source of our blessing. He is the source of everything that we really need. So let's turn to him this week.